Hi, Cherise here with a special announcement. You can now enjoy select episodes of Detailed in video form. That's right. Detailed is now available on RCAT's YouTube channel. Now, you may be thinking, I already listened to the podcast. No need to watch it on YouTube. Well, trust me, if you don't want to miss out, even if you're an avid listener of the podcast, the video format is a completely different experience. Not only is it like hanging out with us, but you also get to hear parts of the conversation that were left on the cutting room floor. You can also see the photos, drawings, and video as we discuss the incredible projects that are featured. Come join us on YouTube. Follow the link in our show notes, and let's get into the details. This is an original podcast by RCAT. Try the number one most used website for finding building product information and save time and money. No registration is required with RCAT, so try it today and get ahead on your next project. Visit RCAT.com. That's A-R-C-A-T dot com. Visit RCAT.com forward slash podcast to see photos, details, and more related project and product information that we discussed today. This is Detailed, an original podcast by RCAT. I am your host, Sharice Lakeside, Senior Specification Writer at RDH Building Science and fondly known as the CSI Kraken. We will speak with professionals who share their insights into the most complex, interesting, and odd building conditions and the ingenuity it took to make it work. Join me as I pull back the curtain on the building industry and uncover the lessons learned. You'll gain valuable knowledge to help you better navigate your next project. Welcome to Detailed. Thanks for coming back to part two of our episode about the Portland Airport Terminal Core Project. If you haven't heard part one, I encourage you to give that a listen before listening to this episode. As a refresher, I am speaking with Mr. Steve Clem, Senior Vice President, Project Planning at Skanska USA Building. In part one, Steve provided some history to the project, noting that the owner, the Port of Portland, is undergoing a long-term effort called PDX Next to prepare the airport for a new generation of passengers. He described how massive the project is including the almost nine-acre mass timber roof that is being installed. And yes, I just said nine acres. The project is so massive, they had to form a joint venture construction team between Skanska and Hoffman. Steve also explained the unique construction process that required prefabrication of the entire roof nearby, which would then be broken down into sections and moved into place. And that is where we pick up with Steve today. So I saw in the video, you know, sliding these pieces Mm -hmm. in. And obviously on any project, transitions and connections for whatever you have to connect or seal up those lines in between things you're putting together are important. And as you're talking about these pieces and parts and putting these things in there, number one, I want to know how you slide it in there. And What are you doing about all those transitions to make everything solid? That's got to be a lot of points that have to be addressed once that piece is slid into where it's supposed to be. Right now, we've just 
in the last couple of weeks completed the first of the what we call the drawers. And so all of the components slide, but the first, I think, seven pieces that went up didn't touch each other. It was a definitely a, a difficult thing, but it wasn't a test of super tight tolerances, right? It okay. was okay, we're gonna we're gonna set this one over here and then skip a bay and put another one and then skip a bay. And that was because of the the way we had these things divided into these modules, which was a piece that had plate girders on either side and wood in the middle. And then we had pieces that were just wood and we called those drawers. And so that was a a big milestone when a couple of weeks ago, we put our first drawer in, which was the first time we had two hard points that we had to slide something huge in between. And uh, (laughs) I... I know a bunch of the folks out there and the account manager and, and one of the superintendents who was helping plan all this. And I, I took a picture of me in my kitchen sliding my drawer in and out. And I'm like, I don't see what the big deal is. But <laughs> I bet a, that went over like a lead balloon. <laughs> what happens is the pieces that are out in the fab yard are broken into smaller pieces. And then conventional wisdom would say, drive it low and then lift it, right? don't put it high and then drive around with it, but we don't have enough time over at the terminal. If you recall from part one, this work is underway at a fully operational airport. PDX is only closed between the hours of midnight to 4 a.m., dramatically reducing their opportunity for any construction at the airport. So we lift it to its permanent spot, and then it moves across the tarmac on these things called SPMTs, self-propelled motorized transports. And they're, they're little tiny cars that have dozens of wheels uh, and they're all connected by computer. And there's one person with a little joystick and it drives very slowly. It's kind of like moving the space shuttle around out to its launching pad. So it drives over there. It's already at the right elevation. And then there's a process that they call launching. They use a thing called a screw jack, which pulls It's anchored to a point, and then it slowly pulls the roof component across some temporary shoring and onto the permanent tops of the columns. At the top of each column, there's a isolator, a seismic piece that can move in all sorts of different directions. And the whole thing slides uh, across the temporary shoring and across the tops of those columns until it reaches its final position to where it's bolted and connected down. The shoring is there because it's so far between the columns that, you know, the thing is cantilevered over one column and, you know, there's a point where it's hundreds feet to the next one and there's just too much weight. And so then all those temporary shoring towers need to be taken down and and disposed of. uh, And then it's in its final spot. So that's the plate girders. And then that sliding happens on both the combination of the permanent parts and then some of the temporary sliders. Uh, and there's this <laughs> this special grease called white lightning, um, <laughs> which you know uh, is a funny. I'm not going to touch that. No? Okay, so no, no, you're going to tell me all about it. I'm not if saying I, a thing. If I if I was a sprinter, you know, that's what they'd call me. But no, <laughs> it it's a it's the white lightning is is just the grease that they used, and like everything, we had to test all these things. Just made the the whole thing slide you know, wanted to make sure that the weight and the friction wouldn't cause it to get gummy or sticky or, and of course, after that, you had to figure out how to get up there and clean it all off. But the drawers themselves don't have 
these big steel pieces on the edge to sort of ride out there. They just have individual ends of glue lambs. And so each one of those has a little roller skate. It's this thing called a Hillman roller. There's these little tiny roller skates, low profile guys on each glue lamb, and it literally slides in there. There's only two inches of tolerance in that whole thing. And then it slides all the way to the back. And then those roller skates are removed and all of that wood is fastened to the steel and that's its permanent position. <laughs> My mind is just exploding. How challenging has it been in this four hours a night that you have when you have to actually go put something up there in this space that has to be open in four hours and safe? So not, mm -hmm. not just getting it up there, but securing whatever you have to secure in order to get that. Have you ever not gotten the occupancy permit? No, there's some intermediate milestones, you know, that we could stop at. It hasn't happened, but if there was an equipment failure or, you know, something wasn't quite dropping into position, you, you can secure it off and take some engineering and, and administrative controls and get your TCO. And so there, there are a lot of contingency plans, like, you know, even just moving the, these things with the SPMTs, they often have flat tires. And so they've got guys that are just walking alongside them, replacing flat tires because that's a common occurrence. But Jason Kosky is uh, the superintendent uh, with the joint venture. He's uh, an amazing guy who really, you know, has been thinking through all of this and he's out there every night and, um, it's going very smoothly, and you know, that's all due to the, just the huge amount of planning. You know, they have this mission control situation where they have a room with all these computers, and there's all these sensors and strain gauges and pressure gauges, and you know, they can sense right away if something's out of whack and if they're pushing too hard or if there's too much resistance or if the drag on the column as it slides across the top of it is causing it to flex too much, and so. They stop, reassess. And I think the other thing is too, is none of this stuff happens very quickly, which is a blessing and a curse, right? I mean, you run out of patience while you watch these things move. But of course, that gives you a lot of time to react and to double check and triple check. And so it's best if you're a casual observer to watch these things in time lapse because <laughs> otherwise- Otherwise you're going to fall asleep. <laughs> otherwise, yeah. Also because it happens in the middle of the night, yeah. Well, I can only imagine that any unexpected- surprises or challenges are not only very complicated, but they're also going to be very expensive on a project of this scope and size, you know, measure twice, cut once kind mm -hmm. of mindset sure. would make a lot of sense. Have you had any unexpected surprises that caused you to change course in construction? I would say that having been involved from the very beginning on this project and kind of getting it in my mind about how we were going to approach it, I think the biggest surprise to me was to be challenged to think bigger than we were thinking. You know, I thought some of our original plans were pretty audacious. Like, you know, my, my concept with the team that we were thinking about was, okay, we're going to build this factory. There's going to be like this big tent out there and the, the, the steel is going to come in one side with the glue lambs and there's going to be some iron workers and some carpenters and it's kind of roll through this tent. It's like a assembly line and each of these pieces is going to be huge, right? They're going to be like 30 by 80. That's how big I thought they could be. You know, then we hired these experts 
there's two big companies in the world that move heavy equipment or heavy objects. Right. Buildings, everything. Uh, and this company is called Mammut, and they're out of Netherlands. And then they okay. have a U.S. base in Texas. And yeah, that's their gig because they have done things like put the concrete dome on top of Chernobyl. Oh, wow. I was at a meeting one time where the team was presenting kind of a plan for peer review. And one of our folks turned to the project manager for Mammut and said, well, it must be exciting for you to be a part of the, you know, this one of the biggest jobs you've ever done. And the woman who was the project manager is like, yeah, no, this is not. Not <laughs> this, this is and, not the biggest job. This is not the <laughs> biggest job. And so they encouraged us to think bigger, to make these giant pieces and move them. And to give you an idea of their mindset, you know, they have an office in Texas and they have this huge yard, right? Because they have all these cranes and rollers and beams and SPMTs and everything they need to store there. They needed a new office space. So they built like a three-story office space they intentionally built it in the wrong spot where they didn't want it to be. And then they picked it up and moved it over to where it was ultimately going to go because they're like, that's what they wanted to do. Like that, that was fun for them. And, <laughs> and so, you know, these are the, these are the kind of people and they all wear these red jumpsuits, which is really cool. And they're super professional. So that, that whole thing was to me was, was the biggest deal. And I think another thing that we overcame, because the whole thing is isolated seismically, the curtain wall around the perimeter actually hangs from the roof. It doesn't bear on the ground or on the building below. So it, it hangs and it can basically swing in two directions. But the part of the roof that it hangs from is actually a cantilever. And so you have this phenomenon where you have you're going to be hanging something very heavy from a cantilever, which if you have some sort of downward force with no upward force, then something's going to move. And you, know, you couldn't have that really dynamic thing happening as you were working on the project. And so all along that top part of the roof that's cantilevered, the team put a series of these giant water totes. You see them in like breweries and factories. They're like a a uh, stainless steel mesh cube that's like a kind of like a meter by a meter by a meter. And then inside of that metal mesh, there's a white, kind of a milky white tank filled with water. And so all along the edge of that roof, these, there's these tanks every so often to mimic the weight of the curtain wall. And then as the curtain wall gets installed and they calculate how much weight is being added because of that, they drain some water out of these tanks so that that weight and that deflection always remains pretty much constant. One of the, the superintendent that works on the job, one of them, uh, Jared, he said it's like the scene from uh, Raiders of the Lost Ark where Indiana Jones is trying to get the Holy Grail off of right. the little thing that has the pressure sensor in it. And he has to like pull it off and replace it with something at the exact same moment. That's the idea is that you're counteracting that deflection and you're taking it out as you go. And obviously that's so big that the quantities of things are really big. Like you can imagine how many screws there are. <laughs> and each one of those screws, it's not your standard, you know, tiny little uh, drywall screw. They're, they're, they're long. Some of them are feet long, but most of them are, you know, several inches long. 
and they take a non-negligible amount of time to drive each one in. And so we did mock-ups really where we just had a stopwatch and it was like, okay, you got a hundred screws to drive in. How long is that going to take? You know, if you were off by a bit, there was going to be a big schedule and, and cost challenge. And so the ability to kind of project forward was critical. I can't, I just can't. I, I, do you sleep at night? I would never sleep at night if I had a project like this because my mind would be going a hundred miles an hour all the time. Yeah. I mean, I'm fortunate, at least from that perspective, to to be involved in lots of different projects. And so I, you know, step away from it. I know that I used to be on projects on site and yeah, the, the complexity of them can definitely keep you up at, up at night. And yeah. There's always it's a huge responsibility. There's always different ways to, um, you know, to continue to think about things and make them better and keep people safe and, and productive. And so it's, yeah, I really admire, you know, the teams that are, that are out there that are doing it every day. Yeah. They're going to need a big, long vacation. That's for sure. So what would you say from this project has been your biggest lesson learned? If somebody was going to call you at the end of this project, which it sounds like it's going to take 400 years with having four hours a night to work. <laughs> um, and two weeks after this project was done and somebody came to you and said, we want you to come do that over here. What is your biggest lesson learned through what you've done in this process, at least so far? Yeah. And just, just for the record, the project will be done in 2026. Oh, thanks. Uh, I was going to eventually ask that, but then I forgot. I got so yeah, lost. So it's a little work. less than 400 years, but, um, <laughs> and it's, it's one of the final projects at the airport. There was a, a complete terminal rebalancing and new concourses, renovated concourses, new rental cars, all sorts of stuff. And this is the, you know, the final thing. And, and when it opens, you'll be able to, to walk into this giant space. It'll be pretty amazing. You know, I think part of it is back to this idea of thinking big. That would be one of my big takeaways from it. As mind-blowing as it is to think about building these giant pieces and moving them, sliding them, and, and all those things, to me, it's, it's a lot scarier to think about the challenge of erecting that roof in millions of little tiny pieces over an active building, right? And trying to figure out how we keep everybody safe, how we're productive, how we make any money at all. You know, how, <laughs> how do you even plan for that? And so looking at things from a different lens involving experts, you know, uh, like some of these experts have these super specialized skill sets that you don't run into very often, but when you do, they're amazing. You know, they bring this global experience to a project that says, okay, well, here's, here's what we can do. And it, it really challenges you to think uh, outside of kind of the traditional ways of doing things, just kind of assembling things piece by piece. I think the other thing too I, I learned is that there was, there was some concern about the wood roof and it was like, well, this is a great carbon story. You know, we could reduce the carbon of the project somewhere between 18 to 20%, which is a big number. But isn't this going to use up all of the wood in the forest? <laughs> and uh, so I learned a lot about the forest and the supply chain and responsible forestry. And I, I would encourage people to you know, continue to explore wood as a building material. The forests are renewable. They're generating new cubic footage of lumber every day. As long as we use wood for the, the right things, structural components and conserve it where we don't need it. And our forest management practices are 
are responsible and sustainable, you know, it's a great thing and, and it's a great local story as well. Well, and it's going to be gorgeous. Yeah. I, I feel like I have to book a flight somewhere just so I can go out there and look around now that I have all this information in my head from everything you said. It's like, okay, I might, I think I need a trip. I mean, not that I need a trip to go to the airport, but it's a good excuse to plan a trip, right? Yeah. I, I mean, I remember being in ZGF's office, you know, almost five years ago, uh, and they had created the first balsa wood models of the roof. And, you know, there's, it's one thing to look at a cool computer model. It's different right. to actually look at a, you know, an old school balsa wood model that you can kind of touch and feel. And, and, and to their credit, you know, the, the design that they came up with is really what's been able to persevere. And, and those early shapes and curves and, and visions are what's going to be realized. That's the other part about it is that we're general contractors, right? And we're very good at what we do. And the joint venture partnership is fantastic. We know how to execute, but without the design team that has this vision, without an owner like the Port of Portland, Curtis Robinhold, who's the executive director out there, to have the, the motivation and give the project the why, we're just looking for something to do. So, Well, it certainly sounds like you have to. Mm-hmm. And and you've alluded to it multiple times since we started talking. You have to have a crack team mm-hmm. that really is committed to working collaboratively and solving problems together. And some some of the little games you see that get played on a typical construction project, there's really not a lot of room for that no. in something like this. And so that's got to be a game changer as well as You've got all these experts in different areas. Mm-hmm. You execute ZGF designs. You're red-suited movers. <laughs> tell you how you're going to move everything. But but having those people come together and contribute their expertise, and that is respected and trusted and considered between all the players, I, I think is the only way you could do something this massive and yeah. this complicated and have it work. Yeah, I think it's a little maybe counterintuitive. I mean, we talk about how big and once in a lifetime and cool, but a project like this takes a certain level of humility between the team members because you are getting together with hundreds of other professionals who may know a lot more about one aspect of the job than you do. And if you are not willing to listen to them or try to have a big ego and like, oh, I know better than that, then you know there's, there's some point it's gonna break down. And so, you know, we have all these smart people uh, in the room um, from all these different companies that are, they have one goal in mind is to do this amazing thing. You know, that's what's in front of us, not, you know, whether or not superintendent XYZ or project manager so-and-so gets the right amount of credit for it. And, you know, and that's why I continue to say when I'm asked to talk about things, I mean, I, I know a little bit more than the average person about this project, but you know, the teams out there that are living it every day, I mean, it's just, it's just an amazing thing to watch. And, uh, I really am in awe of them and their ability and, and, uh, super proud to be connected with them and, and their amazing, amazing work. And, you know, just like every other passenger, I'm going to be out there, you know, right when it opens as well. And, and hopefully not looking at my shoes, but looking at, <laughs> looking at, looking up at the roof. Well, you know, there's a, also there's a hashtag on Twitter that's been going on for a number of years now, and it's hashtag I look up. Mm-hmm. And people, when they travel around, are supposed to look up at the buildings and take a picture. And, and 
tweeted out with this hashtag. So this is this is going to be a star in the I look up department. Yeah. If Twitter's around, you know, Elon <laughs> Musk owns it now. So we'll, we'll see what happens there. Yeah, maybe not. Yeah, maybe not. Um, so big topic is shortage of unskilled labor. Mm-hmm. And I remember telling people 20 years ago, you, you see this train coming, right? <laughs> As I worked for a firm that designed schools and mm-hmm. they were, I watched them designing schools where they were taking out anything related to trades, taking out the wood shops and the, CTE, the auto yeah. shops yeah. and putting in computer labs. And I'm like, what are you doing? Not mm-hmm. everybody's going to go to a university or, you know, there's, there are a lot of fields out there. So now the train's hitting the wall and everybody's going, oh, how did we end up with this shortage skill? Yeah. Yeah. So, and now they're putting all those things back in the schools, by the way, as they're designing them. That's right. But it seems to me like it's going to take 15, 20 years to beef that back up again. Am, am I wrong? Or is this, is this, you know, people making it bigger than it is? Or is this really challenging for contractors? No, it's a huge problem. There's a lot of factors that are they're playing into it. You know, they're, they're, there's a strong bias towards going to college. And that's something that, you know, has been sort of sold as the American dream for, you know, generations or right. a couple generations, right? You know, I mean, you hear about like, I was the first person in my family to go to college. And, you know, now it's like, you wonder, like, can you be the first person in your family not to go to college, like go into the trades? And so there's a, you know, there's been a strong bias in not only like the programs, what they call CTE, technical education, but also from, you know, the career counseling, you know, you need to go to college and education and awareness about the trades and also sort of an outdated view of, of what building trades are and do and how much technology is incorporated in our work now and all sorts of different opportunities to incorporate different skills that are, you know, that go with the trade, but are also people leadership or those types of things. You know, I, it starts super early. I mean, if, if someone's already in college and we're recruiting folks, it's too late. I mean, we need to get to the kids early on. You know, we need more moms and dads to come into the classroom that are, you know, welders and plumbers and carpenters to talk about, you know, the apprenticeship program and, and how, you know, if your friend is in college, you could, you could pay for drinks because you're, you're already earning a ton of money uh, while they're paying for their education. And you're going to be debt free, great benefits. You have a, a skill that you can, you know, that's transferable. You can take it and it's always in demand. There's been, you know, some delays in retirements uh, because of COVID or because of the Great Recession. There's been a slowdown in folks joining the trades because of those same reasons. So it's all kind of coming together. And yeah, we need, we need good folks who are excited about building things and having that, that joy of, of walking away from something that they, they, they built. And, you know, it's a great opportunity also to expand the diversity of that, right? That if it's just how many more white guys can we put on the job site, that's not today's answer to this problem. It is, no. you know, it's a diverse workforce, folks from all sorts of different backgrounds, people from outside the industry that want to retrain, um, you know, veterans who uh, want to come through the Helmets to Hard Hats program or things like that. And, we have to have all these strategies in order for it to be successful because right now most general contractors and trades that I know are, that's the thing that's limiting them right now from going after more work and creating more growth opportunities for their company and their people is that 
they're they're just short staffed. I I've seen projects that it, just in the last few years, great project, brand new building, you know, kind of the quote unquote easy work. Those cherry picked projects that everybody wants. That there was one in particular I'm thinking of right now that they couldn't get a bid from a mason. Mm-hmm. And this should have been one of those plum everybody goes after kind of buildings. Right. It it just because of the shortage and. I've been involved with, I do a lot of mentoring and I don't know, I'm always involved in something and it doesn't seem to me that there's going to be any kind of quick fix. Yeah. I, I don't think it's quick. I think it'll be s- slow and, you know, I, I'm hopeful though that there's been a shift. I mean, even in my own mind, I, I think I grew up in high school studying hard goals to get to college. You know, I went to a private liberal arts college and I wanted to go to more college, <laughs> you know, and, and here I am with kids that are in high school, two boys that one who is definitely, you know, he's a senior and he's getting ready to go to college next year. And my younger son expressed strong interest in the trades. And, and I'm excited about that, you know, and I think the younger me would have been like, what did I do wrong as a dad that my <laughs> both boys didn't end up, you know, in college and I think if I can change that mindset after sort of a being immersed in a in a really academic, you know, thinking that's the, the highest and best use of your time, then I think we all can change and we all can get on board with, you know, that there's all sorts of different paths for different people. And I think we have to, um, yeah. because people are different. My stepson, when I was, you know, raising him, he was very artistic and very creative and he could play the guitar. He had Mm -hmm. some learning disabilities and a four-year university was not going to be a thing for him. It turned out organically, he's a painter and he works for a large company here in Portland. And so he does all kinds of painting Mm -hmm. um, in commercial buildings and and things like that. And he's, as a matter of fact, when I moved into my little town home here, he came over and painted the entire inside for me. Nice. Um, And he's making a good living for his family and he enjoys his work and he's meeting all kinds of people and growing and anything that you work hard at, you're doing well and you're, you can support your family and you're happy is respectable. That's the thing we have to get out there. I think to mm-hmm. our young people and not just shove the college thing down their throat. That's the thing about my job is like, I, I really enjoy my job. I have lots of cool opportunities. You know, I make a good living, support my family, but you know, I, I look at these folks that are actually doing the work and I'm like, I'm jealous, <laughs> right? Like I'm, I, I wish I could do that. I wish I, you know, I wish I had that, that skill where I could look at something and be like, oh, I know how to fix that. I know how to solve that problem. I know how to build that. And, you know, because these folks are just, they're just amazing. And they, you know, you get your, whatever, your 10,000 hours in and, and then you're a master craftsperson. And, and that's pretty, that's pretty cool. That is. And, and hopefully a lot of people will hear this and they'll change their mind. Mm-hmm. Uh, so I have to at least get in my final question. I personally like to call it your, your total world domination statement. For me, total world domination is making the best, biggest mark on this world that I can make that you know I'm personally capable of. Mm-hmm. So personal or professional, what mark do you hope to leave on the world? What do you want to be remembered for? Mm. You know, I, I used to think when I was younger that, you know, I was cut out to make some big invention or some discovery that would be like world changing and, and that, 
that I would get some notoriety and fame and hopefully a bunch of money from that. And I, I've been thinking about that over the last few years as I've been in this industry for 25 years now, that to me, there's something really powerful about consistency and showing up and doing your best every day and treating everybody like you'd like to be treated and, you know, mentoring and passing along. And, you know, and I want to model that to my coworkers. I want to model that to my family, to my boys, my wife. You know, I'm not trying to win the lottery or invest in something that's going to turn into a million dollars overnight, but it's a long game and relationships matter. And I, I just hope that people feel like I, you know, I have been a friend, a mentor, you know, someone they can come to for advice or help um, that I've, you know, I've continued to stay humble and approachable even as I become old and well, just old, I think. It's just old. To it. Just old. You know, and so that's, that's it. I know it's nothing flashy, but, you know, I think building up that, that consistency goes a long ways in creating some, some currency that I can use in accomplishing things, you know, whether it's through the sustainability work I do here at Skanska and trying to encourage people to, you know, move our fleet to electric vehicles and do those kinds of things, or whether it's convincing customers that I, you know, I might know a thing or two about project planning and, and estimating and that level of consistency and credibility, hopefully, you know, allows me to, to do some things that are, that are positive and that, that, that benefit more than just me. You know, it's, I, I'm pretty sure we were siblings in another life. Absolutely. <laughs> it, like you, you, you just said a couple of things I said in my presentation this morning and, you know, I kind of feel like your world domination statement, the real true difference isn't going to be about a big, huge thing. Mm-hmm. It's going mm-hmm. to be all those little ripples that you, from whatever it is you choose to do, it might be a bunch of different things, but every life you touch yeah, or every piece of difference you make because you did this one little thing, you never really know when you have a mission to live that kind of authentic life and, and be, be a person who makes a difference. You know, somebody 10 years down the road is, is making a speech somewhere and saying, I met this person once. You don't even maybe remember that person existed, but you said something or did some something that changed the course of their life. Mm-hmm. And I think it's all those little things that end up being the big thing. Yeah, that's what I'm hoping. Because yeah. it's, it's uh, yeah, you never know what, what that moment's going to be, you know, how important an interaction is with a person at that time. And, and so you have to treat all of those like they're important. Exactly. Well, I have a feeling you're going to do just fine. (laughs) Thank you. Steve, I swear this has been the most delightful and interesting conversation. My mind is going to be spinning. You know, the first thing I'm going to do when I close out this meeting is I'm going to go get back online now and look at this thing again. Yes. With fresh eyes after everything we just talked about. Mm -hmm. Um, I have a feeling this is going to be a wildly popular episode because... That was so awesome. And I really appreciate you taking time. Sure. Yeah. And I hope people really enjoy it because it's, uh, it's been a fascinating story to tell. And uh, if, you, if you go on the Instagram page of the airport, they do have some time lapses that are pretty cool. And so, yeah, thank you so much for the opportunity, for the invitation. Thanks for 
you know, all the great questions and, and the opportunity. Thanks for listening. If you enjoyed this episode and want to learn more, visit rcat.com forward slash podcast to see photos, details, and more related project and product information that we discussed today. While you're there, take a look around rcat.com. For over 30 years, RCAT has been the resource for AEC professionals to find the right products for their project. Try RCAT and see how their tools can save you time and money and help you get ahead on your next project. Visit RCAT.com. That's A-R-C-A-T dot If you enjoyed the show, you can support us by subscribing, leaving a five-star rating and review on Apple Podcasts, and sharing this with your friends. Thanks again for listening. We'll be back to share more stories and lessons learned to help you navigate your next project.